We're going to start a new series today. We've, uh, we've done a, a number of series from the New Testament over the last few years. We've done Sermon on the Mount, which we call Building on the Rock. We've done a whole series on water. Do you remember the water theme one? Um, and that was largely in the New Testament. And then we've done our Devoted series, which was looking at the teaching of the Apostles, some of the themes that are running through the apostolic teaching. We've done all sorts, of thing on, all sorts of things on third Sundays as well. You're absolutely right. So we're going to start our new series, and we're going to do it on Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus and chapter 1. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So you should all get to find it, and we're going right to the beginning. We're excited about jumping into the Old Testament to see what God can say to us here in 2016 through some of these ancient words, because God's word is able to speak in every generation, and there is so much in here that we can make use of. So just to give you a bit of background to this book while you're looking for the book of Exodus. In Exodus, we see really the birth of a nation. Every nation has its origins, its, its story of how it found its independence and became a nation. And this one is a unique story. There isn't a nation on earth that has a story of its formation that is anything like uh, the, the story of how <coughs> Israel came into being as a nation. It is a phenomenal story. Now the name Exodus, anyone know what the name Exodus means? What does it mean? Exit. To exit, to come out. It's ex hodos. It's kind of two Greek words that come together. The way out. So we have fire exits here and here. I feel a bit like a air steward. Um, basically, that's what it means. It means the exit. It's the way out. But that's not what the, the Jews call it. The Jews call it, um, this is the second book of the Torah, Torah, and they call it, these are the names. Because if you look at the first sentence, it's called, these are the names. That's the first few words in the book. So when you've got a massive scroll and you've got to read it in a synagogue, and you've got to find out which scroll is which, and you pull it out, you look at the first few words, it says, these are the names. That's what it's called. So that's what they call it. So this word Exodus, this, which is more based around the theme of the book, came later, um, especially when the Torah was translated into Greek. So, that's the book we're looking at. So, where, when did the Exodus take place? Now, there's a lot, of, a lot of time been spent looking at which dynasty this happened with. And there's a, a lot of confusion. It's very uncertain. But it's like, I think, it's, from looking at it, this is just my humble opinion. I am no uh, historian or Egyptologist or anything like that. But I think it's likely that, that Moses was up against Ramesses II one of the most powerful pharaohs that there ever was. Uh, there are a lot of people that deny it even happened, uh, largely because there's no mention of it in the Egyptian records. Can anyone think why there might be no mention of this in the Egyptian royal records? It, it's embarrassing. They didn't come out of it too good. This is quite typical of the way that a lot of these empires record their history. They record all of their triumphs and their, the, the battles that they win, the, the points where the country develops. 
And yet all of their defeats and all of their points of weakness, they just leave that out of the history. Um, and that's, that's quite a common thing. You see that all over the place. I remember being in the British Museum and seeing a prism. And it was translated to me that it was from a time of when Hezekiah was ruling in Israel. And it said that, that when Hezekiah was, was shut up in Jerusalem, and according to the scriptures, an angel of the Lord came and slew the, the army that was coming to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, it, it basically says, and we had Hezekiah shut up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. So all of that lines up with the scriptures. And then it's just silent. It moves on to something else. It doesn't say, and the angel of the Lord came and destroyed our army. It just moves on. So this is typical of ancient uh, record-keeping amongst the dynasties. So, it's no surprise that it's not there. Now, when was it written? Probably penned around 1450 to 1410 BC. That's an old book, isn't it? 350,000 years old. That, sorry, 3,500 years old. 3,500 3, 3, years old. I mean, that is old. It's amazing that we have it in our hands. I find that remarkable. Who wrote it? Well, according to Jewish tradition, it was Moses who wrote this book. And what kind of writing is it? You know, the Bible is filled with all kinds of different writing. So you've got history books in there, you've got poetry books in there, you've got some allegory, um, you've got a lot of narrative. Thank goodness the Bible's full of narrative because we all have stories. Well, this is kind of half narrative and half legislation, Exodus. And it, it forms as a link between Genesis, which is nearly all narrative, and the other books of Moses in the Torah, which is Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, which are largely legislation with a few moments of narrative in between. So this forms the link between the two. And the thing about Jewish historical writing is it's not always in chronological order. So we don't necessarily read all the events in a chronological, linear fashion. The way that Jewish historians recorded the events is they worked out what was most significant to the Jewish story. And so they included whatever events they felt was significant to the, to the bigger, overarching Jewish story. So they're not necessarily in exact chronological order, but although there is a loose chronology within it. Main character, Moses. We're going to learn a lot from this man. We're going to learn so much from Moses. He's one of my favourite characters of the Bible. I love Moses' heart. Moses, the way he prays for the people, the way he intercedes for the people, he clearly absolutely loves the Israelites. He gets fed up with them as well. He gets exasperated by them sometimes. But most importantly, this simple man is somebody who has cultivated such a deep, living friendship with God. And it's that that really grabs you as you read about Moses and the way he relates to the Lord. And I think we're going to learn a lot about how we can relate to God through him. The main overarching theme is really God's redemption of his people. Within an interesting time frame. You know, God spends less than a year with the Hebrews from the point of the burning bush to the point where they actually leave 
Egypt and they come out of slavery. Less than a year. And then he spends 40 years trying to bring the slavery out of the people. That's interesting, isn't it? I find that fascinating. So it's a story of redemption over a whole period of time. It's a story of a forming of a people group. One year drawing people out, 40 years forming them. The slavish heart of the Israelite people was so entrenched that God chose to wait until a whole generation had passed in the desert. But, and he passed his blessing over them and handed it to their children who had been raised in freedom and in encounters with God. That has something to say to us about the state of our hearts and just how difficult it is sometimes for God to be able to lead us and form us into the people that God has created us to be. So we're going to learn uh, as a church a lot about what redemption and salvation means. We're going to look at what it means to throw off old slavish mindsets and identities and to trust God and to learn to think and to live as God's special people. And my prayer, as always, is that God will use his word, as old as it is, to speak afresh in order to take us somewhere new. How wonderful it is to read a book that's 3,500 years old and it speaks directly into my situation right now and have the power to forge my life to become a man or a woman of God as God has called us to be. That's a miracle, isn't it? And that's where we're going. Okay, we're going to read Exodus chapter 1 and I'm going to invite Barry to come up. He's going to be our reader today. Has anybody got a spare pair of glasses? He's just... It's getting old. Borrowing Fraser specs. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you very much. It's only been the past year. Get to 55 nearly. Right. Can you hold that to Exodus. The Israelites suppressed. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Isaiah, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. I might have got a few of those names wrong. <clears throat> the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. And they built Pithion and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread to the... So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepharah and Pur, Will you help the Hebrew women 
in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stall. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous, and became the midwives feared God. He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Thanks, Barry. Let's give Barry a round of applause. So to sum up, we've got the nation of Israel that has, has multiplied, they've become strong in the land, and uh, they've become a threat to Egypt, and Egypt has decided to, to force them into slavery and to try and manage their numbers through slavery. Um, and it's got deeper and deeper into uh, into this kind of slavish way that the Egyptians are treating them until it gets to that, that final verse where Pharaoh gave the order to all the people, now throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. What a place to get to. Horrendous, horrific story. First question that hit me when I read that is, why are they still there? Why didn't they leave when, in Joseph's time, when Joseph uh, met his brothers, when they came to settle in the land, they met his father, and they were reunited, and they stayed, and they were given this place, place uh, to live. Why didn't, when the famine had passed, and the rains had come again, and the land was becoming fertile, and Canaan was a fertile place to go back to, why didn't they return? Why did they stay in Egypt until it got to this point, and they became slaves? They were free to leave, surely. And I think the human answer is that they were comfortable. It was a lot easier to live in the Nile Delta, where everything's incredibly fertile. And, every, and it's easy to, to grow things there. It's easy to raise livestock there. The climate is more temperate. On the hills of Judea, it snows in winter. And you've got to move your animals around from place to place to try and find enough pasture. Whereas where they were... It was easy, it was warm, it was straightforward. So I think they just stayed because they were comfortable. A divine answer could be that in order for God to just, justly give them the land of Canaan as their own, God was waiting for the wickedness of the Canaanite tribes to reach abhorrent proportions that he may justly remove them from the land. So there's a, there's a bigger meta-narrative over there as well. So they didn't move. <laughs> And they didn't integrate either. They didn't become Egyptians. They stayed as a separate people. And they were known as Israelites, but they were also known as Hebrews. And we know where the term Israelite comes from. We know that the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, became heads of families and tribes of their own. And these people can trace their ancestors it's tracing their family lines back to their ancestor Israel, which is why they're called Israelites. But where does this word Hebrews come from? Has anyone ever wondered about that? 
It's the first thing I want to look at. Hebrews. This term Hebrews is mentioned more in the book of Exodus than any other book. It's sometimes used interchangeably with the word Israelites. The word, I think it's pronounced Hebri, means a wanderer. It means a rootless person with no place of their own. A nomad, or a gypsy, or a hobo if you like. Someone who keeps moving as a lifestyle. There's a guy called Martin Noth who explains that there are ancient Egyptian records that use this term for all sorts of people that are coming into Egypt to trade. Nomadic tribes, uh, Bedouin, people from Africa, people from the Middle East who are coming into Egypt in order to trade, to stay for a while, and then to move through. And there's, they, there's a very strict um, system where they log these people coming through and they're aware of who's in the country and who isn't. There's a, an important immigration center. Um, but they use this term Hebrews in a generic term for anyone who is rootless, who is coming through um, and is in a nomadic situation coming through Egypt to trade. In fact, in the first mention in the Bible is with Abraham, where there is, interestingly, a battle over territory, over trying to possess land, and somebody escapes from that battle to go and speak to Abraham about his, his nephew Lot, that his nephew Lot has been captured. This is all in Genesis chapter 14. But it says, they went to find Abraham the Hebrew. Abraham the wanderer, Abraham the guy who is constantly on the move, who is always sojourning around, who never claims a, a piece of land as his own possession. So this is clear, it's like a, 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 a term used in the ancient world. So the Egyptian elite, masters of the greatest civilization the world has ever seen, they they take these Hebrews or hobos as gypsies to be unsophisticated, totally inferior by comparison, a much lower caste, if you will. And so when threatened by their strengths of numbers, they deal with them without mercy or remorse, as though they had a divine right to use these rootless people like animals or worse in any way they chose. And sadly, this, is, this kind of wickedness has been repeated throughout history. It's a common thing. In every social context, you see the same thing happening across the world, where it begins with one people group considering themselves to be superior, and then su subjecting another people group, whom they consider to be of li little value, into slavery to serve the more powerful people. And it's happened throughout history, and it's happening in many countries today. This is just a, one of the most ugly side of human nature. And it's, it's real. So let's just set the opening scene of this amazing story, because we know it doesn't stay in this state. The Israelites are now a large people group that has outstayed its welcome in Egypt. The Egyptians are paranoid and they embark on an oppressive regime to suppress this second class people. In so doing they find that this produces an enormous workforce with which to develop the country and to make it the greatest nation <coughs> on earth. They built entire cities in record time with this volume of slave labour. 
And they're also attempting to use overworking as a means of birth control. Read, you know, look at verses 11 to 14. That is an interesting strategy, isn't it? I think the general plan was that if they work them hard enough, they're going to be too depressed and exhausted to contemplate having sex or looking after children. But they were wrong. They just kept on multiplying, which is amazing. They didn't manage to slow their reproduction at all, but they did have a profound effect on these people. They successfully broke their Israelite spirits. The Egyptians ruthlessly seared the life of slavery onto the hearts and minds of the Israelite people. Think of it this way, as brutality increases and the slavery deepens, and the generations pass one after another, each one more broken and bitter than the last, until we arrive at the end of Exodus chapter 1. And no one can remember anything but slavery. They were able to say, my parents were slaves. My grandparents were slaves. My great-grandparents were slaves. As far back as anyone can remember, we are slaves. It's all they know. It's who they are. It's how it is. So these are not the same people that left Canaan in Joseph's time. They're a completely different people. They're broken. They're hard-hearted. They're devalued. They, they have little or no sense of history with God. The stories of their early ancestors are now rarely mentioned legends that are probably very difficult to hear, given that this God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob seems to have completely abandoned them. They are seen by the Egyptians and by themselves as completely insignificant. That's the people we're meeting in Exodus chapter 1. So what does God see when he look, looks upon these poor Israelites? He loves them anyway, right? Even though they're all messed up and they've forgotten him, he sees them as wonderful, blessed, chosen people. He loves them as the Hebrews, the wandering, rootless people that they are. With their diminishing sense of history, no real concept of any future hope of inheritance, just taken one day at a time trying to get by in a difficult life. Any of that sound familiar? How many people do you know that could be described as wonderful people, loved by God, yet spiritually rootless, wandering through life with a diminishing sense of spiritual history and no, no concept of spiritual inheritance to come? Good people, just trying to get by in what can be a very difficult life. That could describe most people I know who don't know Jesus. So many people in our community who don't know God through Jesus are spiritually just like the Hebrews in this story. Do you see it? We've got a lot to learn here. It's funny, nothing changes. Just like the Hebrews in this story, when crisis hits, they still cry out to God. To this God that they have such now a distant connection with in their distant history. It's the same for so many people that we know. People that have no sense of connection with God, no real rootedness in any Christian story. When crisis hits, so many people cry out to God and they don't know why. It often feels a strange and unfamiliar thing to do. And yet something deep in the DNA 
something deep within us knows that in that moment, just maybe somebody might be listening that might come to my aid. Well, we're going to remind ourselves of a series where God, who once declared to Moses, I have seen the oppression of my people. I have heard the cries of distress. And yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them and lead them out of the slavery into their own fertile land. We serve a God who sees, I have seen the oppression of my people. He has heard their cries. He is aware of their suffering. And his purpose for every single one of these people who don't acknowledge him and have forgotten all about him is to rescue them and to place them in a land which he describes as a fertile place, a place where they can thrive and grow and become the people they were created to be. I believe that's God's intention for every single person in our town who doesn't yet know Jesus and wouldn't think to acknowledge him. Now, I want to introduce you to the heroes of this bit of the story. You say, where are, that? where are these people? In this story, they're called Shifra and Pua. They're the midwives. Their names are translated beauty and splendor. I love that. Right in the middle of all this horrific language about brutal slavery and genocide, we've got this couple of women called Beauty and Splendor. And I reckon there must have been faith in their family. Imagine being a sixth, seventh, eighth generation slave. And you're living in pretty squalid conditions. And your, your work is backbreaking. And life is bitter. It's said that the Egyptians made their lives bitter. And imagine having a little baby girl and looking at her and, and saying, I'm going to call you Splendor. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. It was tradition back then in the ancient world to, to name your children after what was going on in your time. I mean, Moses was called Moses because his name means to draw out. Because he was drawn out of the Nile. He was found in the Nile. So he was called Moses. Some family... Up there in Goshen, in this um, refugee camp, essentially, had a baby and they were able to see the world in such a way that they called this baby Splendor. I can't imagine there'd be that much Splendor around them, but they saw something that maybe others didn't. So I think there's faith in this family line anyway. Beauty and Splendor. These guys were midwives. They had their work cut out. These are very hard-working women. The Israelites multiplied from 70 when they arrived in Egypt. You can check that out in Genesis chapter 26, verse 27. There were 70 when they got there, to approximately 2 million in 400 years. That sounds impossible, but it can be done. There's a... There is approximately 15 generations in 400 years. If each generation doubles, i.e. each couple has four children, within 15 generations, 70 people can grow to 2.2 million. That's, that's pretty productive, isn't it? Two million people, at the point of the exodus, two million people procreating at a rate that doubles the population every 26 years. That's a lot of babies. And then we get to meet the midwives. If 
If it was just these two, and I'm thinking it can't be. <laughs> it just can't be. Nobody can work that fast. If it was just these two, and if the Israelites continue multiplying at, the, multiplying at their present rate at the point of the Exodus over the next 26 years, they would have had to deliver 2 million babies each. That's approximately 211 babies per day. <laughs> I couldn't resist doing a bit of maths there. Woo! No wonder they said in verse 19, we just can't get there. We can't get there in time. These women are too vigorous. Maybe it just meant that this tribe, this tribe of people is too vigorous. It's not necessarily that they just give birth quickly, although it could be, because people of different nationalities apparently do that at different speeds. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was just so many babies popping out everywhere. They just couldn't get there in time. Amazing. Yeah. So God grants that these women have favour before Pharaoh and he accepts their excuse that they just can't get there in time and he lets them go. And the mid these midwives are protected and they're blessed and countless vulnerable baby boys are protected in the process. That is a wonderful triumph. That's a little jewel of God's blessing right in the middle of this horrific story. This is an inspiration for all of us, I believe, about how God can be at work in our professional lives. Especially if you're working in healthcare professions. God strengthened this couple of healthcare workers to stand on their convictions in a highly pre pressured ethical dilemma. It gave, God gave them wisdom that they needed to achieve security for thousands of people in their care. God had positioned beauty and splendour in their roles for precisely this time, that they might partner with him for the good of others. You know what, I think we should always assume that God has placed us where we are for a reason. God wants to use us exactly where we are in whatever context we find ourselves. It may well be that God has placed you in the role that you're in right now for such a time when you will have to stand upon your convictions of what you know about God and what you know about what God wants for people in order to challenge something in your workplace. When you are encouraged to do something that you know is wrong, you have a choice to make. Are you going to honour God? Or are you going to turn a blind eye and go with it? Or are you even going to put your hand to that thing that you know is wrong? It's not really a question of if, it's when. I believe all of us face these moments where we have to stand up and say, actually, no, I'm not sure that's right. Or I'm not sure I can do that with a clean conscience. I believe God uses Christians all around the world to do just this very thing. And you can never quite measure what the knock-on effect of that moment and that choice will be. Because sometimes if one says, I'm not sure this is right, I don't want... if your boss asks you to lie for them or something like that, and you say, actually, no, I'm not prepared to do that. Sometimes it can make a huge difference for many people. I know that there's many junior doctors out there trying to stand up and say no to some things at the moment. I don't want to get into that debate, especially not with the amount of doctors we've got in the room. Um, but actually, these are people that believe strongly that actually things are moving in the wrong direction and somebody needs to say, no, let's stop here. I don't want it to go any further. I want you just to consider that for, the mo for a moment. Can you believe that God has placed you in your current role because he wants you there for a purpose? Are you prepared 
to put your Christian faith and your love for God first and foremost in your role. And when your superiors or when the, the field that you work in puts so much pressure on you to be somebody that you're, you don't feel you're called to be, are you prepared to say, actually, I don't believe that's right. I need to make some small adjustments and even lose the job if you need to. I believe that's the kind of level that God calls us to of allegiance to him. But the main encouragement from this passage, I think, is the evidence of God at work long before the moment of salvation. You know, as Christians, we talk an awful lot about what goes on in the Christian life when, once you've got saved. We're those people that focus on the 40 years of getting the slavery out of the people. And that's right and proper because that's who we are. We're Christians. We want to grow, right? We want to become the people that God's created us to be. We want to learn who we are as the people of God. But what I want you to see before we get into any kind of mass redemption plan, before there's even a whisper of them getting out of slavery, I want you to see that God is right in the middle of it all. You can't really see it. It says Yahweh there, right in the middle, almost imperceptibly. But he's there, right in the middle of this situation. Remember, Moses hasn't been born yet. Moses was 80 years old when the people left Egypt. Anyone over 80 here thinking that you're finished? We're about to spend a long time looking at Moses, who had just begun after 80 years old. But even before then, even before Moses was born, God was at work in this bleak community of slaves. This is before any miracles. This is before any redemption story. Before God reveals himself as their true and living God in any way that any of them can recognize. And yet there God is in the middle of it all, strengthening these women, giving them his wisdom, protecting the families, blessing the individuals, blessing their reproduction, and sustaining them all through a difficult time. He's there. He's amongst it all. It speaks to me of God's presence and activity amongst the Hebrews, the rootless, wandering Hebrews of our community, those who don't yet know him. God is out there right now in Totnes, He's working towards a redemption plan for each and every one of them. And he's in there right in the middle of their family lives. So before, as we think of our community, before any miracles, before any salvation journeys, before drawing people into church, before he can show them his provision and his presence, and certainly before they can be given the law or asked to live a holy life, God is prepared to be at work in people. He loves to share the lives of people. You know, we see it so clearly in the life of Jesus. Jesus did so much work with people who would never acknowledge him and would never come through to become true disciples. People who were miles away from a, a spiritual salvation journey and yet... He was at work right in the heart of their lives at a grassroots level. Isn't that true for you in your life? Can you see God's work in your life before he showed up in a noticeable way and you were able to respond in faith to him? 
How many of us have been able to look at events before we came to faith and see that God was powerfully at work? God was right there with us, although at the time we couldn't see it, right? Has he shown you that? Has he shown you some of those moments which seemed to be such ordinary circumstances and coincidences? People that he brought into your life. Ways that he manoeuvred you from one place to another. Words that he sowed into your heart and you couldn't even perceive it at the time. But actually now you're full of the Holy Spirit and he's opening your mind as to what he is doing in your life and the way that he loves to work. You can look back and see Oh my goodness, God was at work on every step of the way. Is that true for us? I believe it's true for absolutely all of us. That should be enough to convince us that God is doing the same for those whom we long to come to faith. Right? He is out there right now. He's responding to your prayers for the people that you love. He's even just working on his own sovereign initiative, speaking words, strengthening families, working through our hospitals, working in our cafes, working through family gatherings. Our job is to ask him to show us what he's up to. And like beauty and splendor and Moses, learn to stand with God. And not yield to intimidation until all of our friends and all of our families are released to walk with God. You up for that? That's what this series is going to be about. That's where I believe that God is taking us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Lord, I want to thank you for the way that you have worked with us. And you've worked in our lives, even before we knew you. Lord, this story shows just how willing you are to get involved, to be with us, to understand. He says that you're a God who hears, you're a God who sees, you're a God who makes yourself aware, and you're a God who always has a rescue plan up your sleeve. And so, Lord, thank you that you did that with us. Thank you, Lord, that you brought us out of an old life and you established us in a new one where we could learn what it is to live truly free and not be slaves anymore and to be forged into the people that you've called us to be. People who know your presence and know what freedom truly is. Lord, I want to thank you for how you've done that for us and I want to thank you for the encouragement that these verses give us that you will do that for every single person that we know. You don't give up on anyone. You don't pass by anyone. You don't ignore anyone. You are attentive and aware of every single one of them 